This morning's scripture lesson comes from the prophet Zechariah, chapter 9, beginning at verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. It was said. That's the title of a new podcast by historian John Meacham. It was said. Replays and reflects upon the famous speeches given over the last 100 years of American life. Ronald Reagan gave his final radio address to the American people after eight years of president, and he explained what he meant throughout his entire career in public life with that phrase he so often used, a city on a hill. He described how this country as a city on a hill was a place open to anyone who had the heart and the will to get here. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech in Washington started out as dull and boring, but then something happened within the crowd that encouraged King to stop speaking and start preaching, and his words shaped a movement. The voices in the ten speeches are diverse. We hear the eulogy that Republican John McCain's daughter gave at his funeral, and we hear the daring words of 23-year-old John Lewis spoken on the National Mall long before he was a senator. But what struck me about listening to these speeches is that all of them, though from diverse voices, echo similar themes. Really, they represent not just the voices of those who were speaking. It was said they represent the longing of the American people. 1,000 years from now, if someone were to pull up these speeches and listen to them, what they will hear is the hunger of the people who were longing to create a community of peace and justice, compassion and grace. Today's scripture from the book of Zechariah is most likely a melding of speeches that were given over a hundred year period. We're not sure if these speeches come from about 500 years before the time of Jesus or from about 300 years before the time of Jesus, But some scholars say that this prophetic book of Zechariah is simply layering together many of the speeches given over several generations. They are really the collected sayings, the longings of the people. Now, I would venture to guess that most of us have never read the book of Zechariah. Oh, oh, maybe once when you read the Bible cover to cover, you skimmed it. But other than that, it is a seldom read aloud book in church. Have you ever been to or even heard about a Bible study on Zechariah? No. 
Now, last week, Mike preached on Zephaniah, and some of you are sitting here surprised at this moment that there's really a book called Zephaniah and another one called Zechariah. But you know, when the story of Jesus was told in the Gospels of Matthew, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of those gospel writers called upon the words of Zechariah. They quoted the verse we just read from chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly. Your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We hear it every Palm Sunday when we remember Jesus riding on a donkey into the holy city. We remember that Jesus was both triumphant and humble. The gospel writers connect the dots between that prophet of old, Zechariah, who said that God will send someone to make us rejoice, someone victorious and at the same time humble. So who is it that God sends? Now we could go back into history and we could figure out who was the king in the year 500 BC or who was the king in the year 300 BC. And we could say, is this the one that the speech writer was talking about, the one that God was hoping for, the one that God promised would surely come. Or we could say, no, it wasn't even referring to those ancient kings. It was referring to Jesus, the one who would come 300 or 500 years later. But scholar Adrian Lesky proposes that there's a third way that we could read this prophetic word of hope. As the people returned from a time of national hardship, social upheaval, and spiritual angst known as the exile, how did they find the leaders to rebuild both their house of worship and their social fabric? This was the question they were wrestling with. And Professor Lesky argues quite convincingly that this victorious king on a donkey was not one person, but the whole people of God, God's faithful people at that time called Israel. When God's people were facing despair and doubt, they could just sit back and say, won't God ever fix this mess? Or they could say, it is up to us to fix this mess and we just keep messing it up worse. But the prophet voices another possibility. What if the one that God is hoping for is not a politician or a king or a priest or a president? What if the one that God hopes for is not in the far distant future who will swoop us up into heavenly joy? What if what God hopes for is that we will be the ones, both victorious and humble. What if God places God's hope in us? At the end of this passage, in the prophet Zechariah, God turns God's focus directly to the ancient people and addresses them with these words, O prisoners of hope. Today, I declare, I will restore you double. 
God does not point to an outside force or a leader. God points to the people. They are the ones in whom God hopes. O oh, prisoners of hope, God addresses God's people. It's a partnership. God will restore the people double. Is it possible that we too, as God's people, can become also the prisoners of hope? Now, initially, to be in prison does not sound all that appealing. Because to be in prison means to be held against our will. But what if what we are held by is hope? What if we cannot possibly imagine doing anything else but hope because we are God's people? I love what one scholar says, that we are not asked to be prisoners of optimism. To be a prisoner of optimism is to deny the evil and the death in the world all around us. You can't be optimistic about COVID or cancer. You have to respond medically. You can't be optimistic about Hitler. You have to stand up to the evils. But sometimes we feel also like we are prisoners of despair. We think that it's possible life is never going to get better. Maybe racism will never be erased from our society, we lament. Will depression and addiction rob our precious youth of their vitality and future? Will family tensions ever cease? Will we continue to look over at our own tables, brimming with too many calories, while millions of children remained malnourished? It is easy to think that all of this is up to us to fix, and we can simply see ourselves as prisoners of despair. God calls the people prisoners of hope. But how do we hope? Jürgen Moltmann, who fought the Nazis for the Nazis in World War II, then had a conversion experience in the prisoner of war camps and became a leading Christian theologian of our century. He describes hope with these words, hope is nothing else than the expectation of those things which faith has believed to have been truly promised by God. Hope then is how we partner with God in creating a different world, a world of justice and love, grace and peace, a world where the people are both victorious and humble. Moltmann writes that without hope, faith falls to pieces. Faith becomes faint-hearted and ultimately a dead faith. And so what does a prisoner of hope look like? We know the obvious ones whose names take their place in history. Nelson Mandela, who spent decades as a political prisoner and then came out of prison not bitter, but hopeful and dedicated to the reconciliation of all people serving as president of the nation that helped, held him captive but failed to destroy his hope. But there are also the names of those we have never heard of who are also prisoners of hope. I think of Emil Amon. Emil was born in the early 1900s on a farm in rural North Dakota to immigrant parents. His father died of influenza while he was still a young boy. And when he died, 
His father left him an inheritance of a thousand dollars, but because Emil was a boy and couldn't open his own bank account, the uncle was made the custodian of that money until Emil would reach the age of adulthood. But in the intervening years, the Great Depression came and the bank in their small town was shuttered and the money was lost forever. When Emil turned 21, his mother sued the uncle, her deceased husband's brother, for the $1,000. And the uncle had to, to pay it. So he mortgaged the farm to pay his nephew the money. During the next few years, that uncle's family suffered immensely, trying to feed five kids and plant the crops while paying off the banknote. Emil moved away to California and the two branches of the family never heard from one another again. But when Emil died in California at the age of 98, Emil left a percentage of his $1.5 million estate to the heirs of his uncle. He insisted to his lawyer that the uncle's descendants be given a portion. The lawyer had a hard time tracking them down. They had all moved, but he persisted knowing that Emil was adamant that a gift go back to the descendants of his uncle. All that time, Emil had been a prisoner of hope. He had believed in doing the right thing. He wanted to bring justice and compassion to the man who had cared for him and suffered on his behalf. Of course, Emil's uncle had been dead for decades, but the uncle's five kids were all still alive, all in their 80s now, and one of those kids was my father-in-law. And so my father-in-law and each of his four siblings received each $14,000. But the prophet does not call out one of us to be the prisoner of hope. Rather, the scripture talks in plural as prisoners of hope, a collective group. And so where do we see groups of people today who are living as prisoners of hope? I think of the 198 women here locally in Kansas City at Amethyst Place, all previously homeless and trying now to build new lives, reuniting with their families, completing college and becoming Becoming economically viable. I think of many of the groups here in our own congregation, Bible studies, mission groups, life worth living classes, mothers of preschools, the choir, the knitters, the anniversary Sunday school class. I see them gathering together, not just to learn, but because when they gather, they are prisoners of hope. Just a few weeks ago, I gathered with one of our small groups just outside the church doors in the parking lot. The group set up chairs because the mask mandate was still in effect. They made a circle, and every other chair was filled with a black person, and every other chair was occupied by a white person. Some were members of Swope Parkway United Christian, and some were members of Country Club Christian, and together they shared testimonies about how they had glimpsed injustice in their own workplaces, family groups, neighborhoods, and they prayed together. 
and they learned from one another, and they got to know one another. And what I sensed was that this was a group of people who hear it will take a long time to make the world right, but the people I saw in the circle didn't want to wait. They were prisoners of hope. They were ready to reach out to one another and to trust that the God who created each of them would bind them together into a holy hope. Listen with me to this line from a speech. And imagine, if you can, when it was written. This is the great danger that America faces, that we will cease to become one nation and instead become a collection of interest groups, city against suburb, region against region, individual against individual, each seeking to satisfy private wants. <laughs> it sounds like it could have been taken from yesterday's newspaper, but it was written in 1976 when I was 13 years old. It was spoken by the first black woman to serve in the United States House of Representatives, Barbara Jordan of Texas. And Barbara explained that she came to serve in public life because of her family's deep history in the church. She said her grandfather taught her, the world is not a playground, but a schoolroom. Life is not a holiday, but an education, one eternal lesson for all to teach us how better we might love. What would it take for you and I to join together as prisoners of hope? How can we be the one that God calls upon, the one who is victorious and humble? There is another passage in the prophets where this humble and victorious servant of God is described so eloquently by the prophet Isaiah who says that this is the one who is smitten by God. Once we are together, smitten by God, how can we be anything else except prisoners of hope? Perhaps that this is what makes us prisoners of hope, the calling to partner with our God. I saw a reminder of this when we toured Pearl Harbor just a few weeks ago. My family and I had just exited the museum detailing the horrors of that day. In moments, more than 2,400, including 65 civilians, perished and thousands were wounded. The bombs fell on a quiet Sunday morning. There was etched in marble a quote from someone describing that day. The quote overlooked the quiet Pearl Harbor. It said few islanders went to bed that Sunday night. Outdoors, there was an eerie silence. Shortly before midnight, the moon began to rise and a vivid lunar rainbow, an old omen for victory, arched over the dark city. What if we are the ones that God sends as instruments of God's loving purpose on this planet?